Welcome to another episode of M&A Stories. As you know, mergers and acquisitions and integration are fraught with hurdles and challenges. It is as much a science as it is an art. And yet, majority of the companies fail to go through an M&A integration property. That's why we are bringing you these M&A stories from veterans from the industry and industry experts. My name is Daniel Vance and I'm the CEO of Fifth Chrome and the host of this interview. And I'm joined by Marcela Hall, who is going to be our co-host today. Hi, Marcela. Hey, Anirvan. Hope you're having a great day. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Marcela Hall. I lead employee experience for mergers and acquisitions at a software company. And I'm so excited to be here with you today. Excellent, excellent. And, and today we're going to have Greg Meshek, who's was your colleague, I believe, uh, at one point in time. Yes, we were colleagues at EY. We worked there together and worked on a project together. Excellent. So let's call upon Greg then. So welcome, Greg. Um, it is a wonderful day in Amsterdam. It's sunny, bright blue skies, very unusual for this part of the year. I, how about you guys in Denver? Yes, Greg. Um, thanks Thanks for hosting, uh, Marcel, on, on beautiful day. Uh, it's not particularly warm, but um, bright sunshine and that's, that's Denver for you. So something like 330 days a year we get this. So it's not new for us. Uh, unfortunately for us, and that's unfortunate for you, maybe. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so Greg, uh, I've heard lots of good stuff from uh, Marcella, who I believe was your colleague at one point in time. Um, yep. uh, but I think it's the best way to start the interview is probably an introduction from your side. How would you describe yourself the best way? Sure. Um, yeah, so, so my background, I've, I've got over 30 years of experience, both on the, the professional services side as well as corporate. Um, the last 15 years or so have been focused on transactions, both on the, the sell side and the buy side, um, you know, uh, with professional services. So my, my, what I enjoy and what I think, uh, where I bring a particular expertise is in the area of, of integrations. Um, so it's interesting to me. It's a challenge. I, the reason I like the integration side better than the divestiture side in some ways, the sell side is that you bring it in and you, you have to watch it grow. Right. So you, you look at what they thought they were going to do and then do they actually achieve that as they go forward. So it's more of a growth and desire to integrate as a result of the purchase versus getting it ready to move out, um, in the organization then says we're done with it and, and moves on to, more strategic elements from their side. So uh, that's what I've done. I've spent uh, five years in Europe earlier in my career um, and have spent, like I said, the last 15 focused on transactions. Thanks, Greg, for sharing that. And it's great to see you. Um, it's great to see you and, and maybe one day post COVID in person since we're in the same area. So that Fantastic. would be awesome. Um, I would love, yeah, looking forward to it as well. Would love to hear a little bit about some of the deals that you were involved in. Can you share a little bit at a high level and what were some of your roles in those deals? Sure. We speak, uh, I think, specifically here to, to integrations. We can talk a little bit about divestitures just because I think, you know, it's obviously the flip side. Somebody's buying something, somebody's selling uh, a business. Um, from the integration side, uh, led two or three more recent ones. Um, whereby we were in the position of being on the front end of the diligence side. And then from there rolling into developing the integration plan. Uh, there was one business that was a uh, cold fill business that was buying a uh, direct delivery bottled water business. And the idea being that we could um, build on the drops and the drops in this case would be the, um, you know, the synergies would be based on putting additional product and dropping um, additional product to customers to drive uh, productivity as well as top line synergies and, and revenue in that respect. So we were uh, working with a PE owned business that was coming into a public co. So it had all of those attendant challenges, which we'll talk about in the next one as well, whereby the PE um, and, and the mindset of the PE was very different than what's required inside a public co, specifically around financial reporting and some of the other elements of um, just what we can do uh, as a public co versus a private co. Uh, but we led, I led the, the group, the team there to establish the plans, um, work with the client, uh, CFO in this case, to ensure that all of the deal economics and the deal model um, identify, were identified and achieved. Um, 
so yeah, it was, it was, it was a good experience. And then obviously you've got the other side, the buyer side or the sell side, I should say, where you've got to work with them as well, because the deal doesn't work unless you work with both sides. So we had to coordinate with them. Um, and interestingly enough, a colleague of mine was on the other side of the deal. So that made it even more challenging. So, um, but anyway, so yeah, led the deal, developed the, the integration plan, and then work with the client to ensure the deal synergies in this case were achieved. And we built a, a fairly robust model to, um, to help them identify that. The, the other case, if you will, that I think is um, interesting, uh, which will go, I think will, will be sort of the, the bigger part of our discussion today was um, a pretty complex deal wasn't huge in terms of dollar value, but the complexity far outweighed the size of the deal. Um, and this was a US public co that was buying two privately held businesses um, to, at the same time owned by two separate PEs. One was based in Munich, Germany, the other uh, in a small town just outside of Amsterdam. Um, they were both, um, like I said, owned by separate PEs, but the US public co acquired them at the same time and wanted to integrate them simultaneously. Um, and the, the business they were being integrated into was the European business. So um, we were responsible for developing the integration plan. We weren't on the front end of the diligence. Uh, we got the deal, so to speak, and it was up to us to integrate it. Um, so we'll talk more about that as we click through and have a, a deeper discussion on some of the other questions you have. But um, leading that selling that, working with the public co side, as well as the European side, as well as the PEs, different countries, different languages, different cultures, and all of which I think we'll, we'll get into some more detail on as we go through this. So those are two. Um, it's quite quickly here, maybe we'll just digress into the divestiture side where uh, I've led, um, and this is one of the deals, uh, Marcel and I had the opportunity to work together on a global uh, medical device business that was being sold um, which was incredibly complex. Um, this was a public co-buyer on the other side. Um, so they had an idea of what they were getting, but it, uh, it was not without its challenges as it was a global business, um, coordination across all functions, um, as well as getting the buyer to, how should we say, get to the end line at the same time we wanted to. So, uh, so anyway, a couple of those as well that are, are more on the divestor side versus the integration side. Thanks for sharing that. I was also thinking about that, that um, opportunity that we had. Over 2,000 employees were impacted across about 50 countries. So yeah, just um, underscoring you know, the complexities involved there, but that was a really great opportunity um, and a great learning opportunity as well. What would be curious to hear would be some of the rationales that these companies had. You know. I'll take us back to the first one where it was a cold fill um, carbonated drinks business that was in the business as well of coffee, uh, coffee in the context of both roasting and uh, home delivery. And they had trucks that would go on routes and those routes, similar to if you're familiar with PepsiCo, you know, a, a direct, direct delivery system, right? So they would have a truck and they go out and drop orders at the customer's doorstep. And they were looking at work, we have a complimentary business. And they, they looked at it and the strategic rationale for this one was this home delivery of the of water. Um, so you've got five gallon jugs of water that were being dropped <clears throat> by, um, by this business that they were acquiring. The thought process was, can we put the, the water on our trucks, load up our trucks, have a higher price point on our drops, no additional drops, but higher drop, uh, you know, revenue per drop. And in that case, um, a couple of the other challenges were, do the coffee drinkers want the water? One. Two, um, water's heavy. So they had certain types of trucks and how much can you put on in weight at the same time is maybe there's a, a demand for that. Um, you had to be conscious of, of the assets that you had to be able to deliver that. The third one was the route guy who's dropping coffee is maybe not the same guy that's going to be dropping water. So you had to educate and uh, find the right um, the right drivers who were going to both load the truck and unload the truck. So that was the deal rationale was we could load the trucks, we could put more product on the truck and we could get a higher drop um, revenue per drop for each of the truck routes without adding incremental miles, which of course was huge. Um, quick story on that is ultimately they got out of the carbonated 
soft drink business and became a water company. So it was kind of interesting. They, they use that as a platform to re, reinvent themselves um, as, a, uh, as a water business versus a, uh, a carbonated soft drinks business. Um, so they were primarily private label. On the, the other uh, acquisition that we were discussing, they were looking to expand their uh, capabilities in a couple of areas. One was a, a white space they didn't have. It was a bike lock business. And they wanted to expand their capabilities and, and such into the, the bike lock business. They're a lock company, but this was a, an adjacency that they hadn't addressed previously. And they found it to be one, highly profitable um, and two, um, synergistic with what, you know, their go-to-market strategies there. So that was the one uh, business that was bought. The second business was they were um, currently, the, the buyer was currently in the old school sort of manual lock business. And this business in Germany was electronic locks. So electronic locks, both uh, doors and door mechanisms, as well as windows and others, and allowed them to um, buy R&D essentially and um, increase their, their abilities beyond sort of what they called the door knockers who would come in and the guy would need a, a, lock, a locksmith. They would provide the lock. Now they're looking at something far more um, uh, advantageous in where the you know, the market was going as, as you well know. So that was the strategic rationale for the lock business, one to expand into the bikes, which seems a little strange, but then you take a look at, uh, you're in Amsterdam, so you're familiar with uh, the turnover in bikes um, and, and the necessary, uh, you know, to have the locks. And, and secondly, uh, uh, they wanted to get into electronic lock business versus the manual lock business. Thanks, Greg, for sharing that. Um, mm -hmm. Awesome. Sounds like an awesome experience. I'm curious to know, as you're moving forward in this integration work, leading the integration work, you know, how did you see things going overall? And maybe more specifically, how, um, you know, how did the process go as compared to your expectations, like in terms of the, the duration and time? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, so, when we first looked at the, the business in Europe, um, we were brought in by um, the US um, business development guy. And he said, Greg, you know, great story. We like your approach. Let's move forward. Um, what would have been helpful had he shared that with the woman who was heading the European operations. So we were dropped in and we're here to help you. Um, one, she wasn't aware we were hired. And two, um, she wasn't quite happy that we, that she didn't feel she needed help. Um, so that first hill to climb was bringing her in under the tent. And I think that was a real challenge. And I think it was, um, it was really hard. And I'll be honest, I don't think we ever convinced her that she needed all the help she got. She ultimately said, okay, I'm, I'm okay with it, but she was never to a place where we could get her to embrace, you know, why we were there and how we could help her, irrespective of the work we did. So I think that was one real challenge that we had to face. Um, and then from a time-wise, of course, that elongated the timeline. So the prep, the IMO work, the integration management office and the communications to bring her on board before anything got shared with the US uh, just elongated our schedule far beyond what we thought we would be doing. So we spent a lot of time in the coaching and comms place um, those Thursday night meetings were brutal <laughs> um, because every single line item was addressed, every word, every um, element of what we were pulling together needed to be fully vetted through her um, and her team before we could have any conversation with the IMO. And the IMO uh, on the other side is saying, we don't need that, just tell us what's going on. So there, there was that uh, challenge of, of uh, getting both parties on board at the same time. Um, which, which added cycles that um, were far beyond what we had anticipated, what I would have expected in a deal this size and with what we were working with. So it was, the timeline got elongated purely because we had to, we had to you know, flex to their demands and be, be um, amenable to that in a way that typically we'd like to just move forward, right? Do the work. Mm -hmm. And we were actually going to ask you, you know, what were some, maybe something that blindsided you or something unexpected or unanticipated and you've already, yeah, you, yeah. that's a good yeah, that example. That was a real challenge. Um, and I think of all the, 
the projects I've been on, I've, I think we've always been, I don't wanna make it about me, but I think our teams have always been able to work closely with the, um, both on the buy side and the sell side to bring people together. Cause that's the, you know, the meaning of success and things go a lot better and a lot faster that way. Um, we just were never quite get, able to get her and her team um, to really join us in a way that I think the people in the businesses that were acquired as well as the U.S. parents saw us. So uh, that was ultimately, I, I would say one of our, I'll be honest, I think that was a failure on our part. I don't know. Um, we should have done things probably a little bit differently in retrospect, um, but that's how you learn. Great. Thanks for bringing up two very important aspects uh, follow dealing and integration. Uh, one is around communication or right-time communication, and you gave two perspectives. One was the lady was not ready in, in, in Europe to host you guys. The second thing is, this internal pushback on external resources, you know, people who are supposed to be experts, right? Uh, you know, the, this internal belief that everything can be done by the internal teams. Yep. Um, and uh, not particularly just your own personal experience, but also your colleagues and otherwise. What's, what are some of the usual issues that you come across leading m integrations in their own industries or in their own geographies? Great question. One is, as we come in, uh, and it depends where you're brought in on the deal, right? If you're if you're helping with the diligence side and you roll from sort of deal diligence into the actual integration, then I think you've got two things going for you. You've got a better understanding, if you will, of the deal um, uh, model, sort of the investment thesis. Um, you have an understanding of where they're trying to go. Um, if you don't have that and you're just coming in fresh and said, okay, we've already decided we're going to, we've acquired the business. Now it's a matter of, you know, integrating it. Um, you've got to have the right relationships. One, two, you have to understand the data and the information. Um, Marcella will, will understand this when you have know, something like headcount files, right? As you're going through and you're looking at, you know, who's staying and who's going on the deal, especially on the integration side, there's been identified people, um, who are those people? How are they coming in? Uh, how long will they stay? Um, so the, the critical aspect there is, is one is just, you know, what's your organization going to look like on a post-close basis? What is the operating models um, going to reflect? How are we going to integrate? Um, and getting our arms around that in a way that um, we can be effective. Um, so that's important. I think another piece to that is just the overall planning to be able to um, execute against you know, the, the uh, objectives of the, the deal itself. So those are two critical areas, I think, as we look at it is you know, just understanding the deal, um, two, understanding the information that's required. So as we're looking at the, the synergies and being able to quantify those and build those and track those and measure those, therefore achieve those and help them sustain them is going to be critical. And then understanding the people side of it is, you know, how we're going to move forward and who has that information. Um, you know, there's reservoirs of information and data that sit in different places. Uh, how do we get that and what do we need and being crisp and clear about what it is we need so we can go and get the information to be able to support um, the deal economics. So that's a good point that you bring in. This kind of leads to also sort of the culture of an organization as well as some of the resistance. Any thoughts on culture, readiness, any thoughts of uh, cascading it through sort of the mid-management versus the top management? Yeah, I, I think um, your point is obviously it's absolutely critical, right? Because um, if if the two business, the business being acquired and uh, the buyer and the seller are in different places, from a cultural standpoint, one where it's all data driven and it's all about the data and it's a, if you will, a finance led organization versus a sales or marketing led organization. Um, those create challenges because of the, the mindset and how things get done and the expectations. Um, I think that's a big piece of it in that um, getting the culture right is critical uh, because otherwise you're going to stumble. You're going to you're going to have these episodes where you're spending a lot of time going through issues that really aren't issues, or more cultural issues versus fundamental business issues. But you know, for example, um, if you don't respect a particular business, it may have you know we get coffee at ten, right? We, we go out and we get a coffee. You know, and we'll be back in fifteen minutes, and the other side is saying, "What do you mean coffee? What, we just had coffee." You know, what I mean, it's just it's simple things that really set the tone of how we're going to work together. 
and understanding that cadence. If you have lunch at noon, if you've ever been in a meeting and with an organization that is absolutely rigid about, you know, this is lunchtime, quote unquote, and you're just blowing through and you're like, no, we've got to get this work done. Um, that's not good. I'll, I'll give an example. Um, we were working on a deal and um, we were driving towards getting things done. And I was really focused on getting things done. We needed to get this done. So it became six o'clock, eight o'clock, 10 o'clock. And the client's like, well, what should we do? I said, we need to get through this. You know, we got to drive through it. So at the end of the day, we drove through it, but it was a very, very big move, uh, bad move on my part, because we got to the end. Uh, the client on the other side was not particularly happy that we drove to that end. Um, so understanding cultural norms and, and being respectful of those is, is critically important because you need people to buy into this. You need the help and support of people who really want to get it done. And you need the hearts and minds. And if you don't have those, you're just going to get what you ask for. It may not be what you need. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, in terms of sort of mitigation, you could assess the culture of both organizations with, you know, a series of questions, probe those same questions across the two organizations, take a mm -hmm. look at the responses and see, okay, where are their similarities? Where are their differences? And then also, what is our strategy and approach? Do we want the organization that's being acquired to, um, do we want them to evolve to our culture? Or right. is there something, are they, is there something about their culture that we want to preserve? So you can kind of think through the strategy there and then determine how best to, to facilitate that change. No, that's an excellent point is, as you look at integrations and I think we'll touch on maybe a little bit is, you know, what is the type of integration we're talking about? Is it really an integration or is it an acquisition? Um, you've got a, a business and take the lock business that I was describing before that was going to be a standalone group that was reporting into the U S but they were sort of autonomous in the sense of, product development, product uh, distribution, and therefore they weren't going to be uploaded into the mothership, so to speak. They would have to report information. They'd have to report sales, but it was really a business that was more of a reporting entity versus being managed by the U.S. Um, the lock business was much more difficult because that was based in the U.K. and the Germans in the U.K. businesses, you know, the technology was coming from Germany and the old school manual lock business in the UK. And there was just, it was being forced in together and therefore sales strategies, marketing strategies, all of that were integrated and that created a real challenge. So to your point, you've got the German group that's R and D and spending a ton of money in R and D and um, the UK business saying, why are you spending any money at all on R and D? You know, it's, it's a lock business, so to speak. And I'm exaggerating to, for a point, but um Exactly right. So that was going to be integrated. The lock business was going to be more standalone. Therefore, there were different mechanisms to attach those in terms of the integration. Right. So, so continuing on that theme, uh, and uh, we know that uh, from experience that a lot of cross-border transactions, especially American companies buying international companies, whether it's mm -hmm. European or Asian companies, they often come across these sort of cultural minefields what would be some of your advice to these, these uh, new acquirers when they do cross-border transactions? I would dovetail on, uh, on Marcella's point here. I think um, as we look at integrations, we tend to, and I'll, I'll be a self-confessed sort of finance guy, so we tend to drive and you know we're driving towards results and we're focused on timelines and not that anybody else isn't, of course, but we come from that mindset, right? So it's all about getting no deal leakage, hitting the timelines, exceeding the timelines, and ensuring you know, synergy and value creation and realization. I think sometimes we go over the speed bumps called culture and people, and then we look back and say, ouch. Um, so I think Marcella's point and, and understanding from a cultural norms and, and what are the cultural norms, learning those early on and spending the time, which doesn't feel quote unquote, value added at the time, because you're like, what's the outcome? Well, we now understand, okay, well, what does that mean? Um, we'll do a lot to getting the buy-in that you need and understanding the requirements in particular countries, because nobody has a clear view on all of that. I mean, we had different, um, the deal that Marcel and I were on, there were different issues in China and South Korea that were different from each other. It wasn't just Asia. I mean, you, Asia, you know, you, you can't, it's country by country, right? 
Same way in Europe. You can't say what's right in Finland is going to be the same thing in Portugal. It's just not going to work. Um, so there are different norms, even though we, we put them in big buckets. So I think understanding, you know, where you are, where the deal is and what, what's required, you know, both from a country level and then from a region level and then ultimately to wherever the, um, you know, the acquirer sits is, is critically important. And spending that time up front to minimize those, what I would call speed bumps, um, is probably not a fair way to put it, but uh, just a thought. Right. Process. Stretching the conversation a bit further, when it comes to transactions, you normally have the transaction advisors who, as you pointed out, they, they tend to have a very financial orientation. And the industry acknowledges that. Industry knows mm-hmm. investment bankers will be involved, lawyers will be involved, sometimes brokers will be involved. But it still does not acknowledge the cultural catalysts or people who can actually handle culture, handle some of the leadership differences between companies. What's your take on why the industry is still the way the industry is? Well, I think a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, One, the deal rationale is probably explained to the street, right? And especially in a public co-environment, if you're you're making a, a fairly large acquisition, you've made some comments to the street, right? You've made uh, it clear why we're doing this, what we expect to get from this. The dollar signs um, are probably there to say, this is what we're gonna spend. And we're gonna get a multiple off of, off of that, right? As a result of, of the deal. So I think the mindset um, is early on is how are we gonna get the deal done? What's it gonna cost? And as a result of that, what are we gonna earn? from that, that particular acquisition, right? So I think it drives the behavior from that standpoint. Um, and the patience associated with understanding other elements of that, that maybe are, are the non-financial pieces that drive a big piece of the deal, uh, potentially. It's harder to explain that in a you know four sentence soundbite to an analyst, right? It's, what do we do? Well, you know, we got along well with the, the Chinese team. And as a result of this, we're, we're moving faster in China than we thought we would. We get regulatory approved, something, but it's hard to put the tangibles on that, right? By definition. Right. And I think the deal dynamics and the deal economics are often driven by financial outcomes. And I think that drives the behaviors. Uh, what I think those of us who've gone through this recognize that to get there, you need to, you know, Uh, the other side of it as well, which is complemented with an understanding of the cultural dynamics that will help you get there. And if you, if you don't get those right, you're not going to get there. So, um, but I think that's why my perspective, I don't know, Marcel or or perhaps yourself or, you know, do you have a thought on that as well? Because um, obviously this is my experience and my thought, and it's sort of one person here, but uh, that's, that's kind of what my thinking is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, I'll, I'll go first and then Marcella, uh, you know, uh, you can uh, share your views. And in fact, Marcella and I, we have had several rounds of discussion regarding sort of the cultural aspect. I mean, if you look at, if you look at cultures, you could primarily divide it into sort of three major buckets, right? So you've got the geoculture, which is uh, uh, from the geography that you belong, uh, whether you come from Germany or Netherlands or UK or China, uh, you would have a certain geo geoculture there the second one is what we call an industry culture you know so uh, pharmaceutical companies would behave in a certain way compared to some of the old economy businesses uh, you know like as you said uh, classic locks as as an example right um, they would behave in a very different way versus the card locks which is a very you know highly technologically focused Right. And then the third one is what we call an organizational behavior, organization culture. This is where, uh, you know, how do you wear, uh, you know, what do you wear to office? How do you, uh, you know, how do you interact with your boss, with your colleagues, socialize? So uh, I would say three different perspectives on culture um, uh, or three different buckets right. uh, to sort of um, classify them and then start uh, assessing each of the companies there. Yeah. Marcella, what's, what are your thoughts? I would just add that in addition to, you know, observing here's the culture at this organization at an organizational level, um, I would also say that there could be some variation at the functional level as well. So you might find, well, the sales culture at this organization, and you could describe it versus the other teams in the organization. So it's possible that you you could see some nuances there. Um, yeah, that, that's that's my thoughts on that. 
and I'd actually love to, Greg, tee up a question for you. As you were just kind of talking about financial res results and all of that, mm -hmm. um, as you look back and reflect on all of the transactions that you've worked on over your mm -hmm. career, and especially the ones that you've shared with us today, mm -hmm. um, sort of what, what kind of results did you see 12 months post-close, 18 months post-close, or maybe a few years post-close? Did mm -hmm. you see that uh, the, the goals were achieved? And not just from a financial perspective, but whatever those, those goals of the deal were, um, just, just your thoughts on that, on, on what you observed looking back as time progressed in those transactions. Yeah, good question. Um, so in the first one that we talked about with the, the water business being acquired by the soft drink business, um, clearly they made the right move, you know, and I think um, as a result of, of that acquisition, which was, was quite large, was over a billion dollar transaction, um, that was relative to the size of the acquiring company was huge. Um, it's clear that they made the right choice. Um, being in the carbonated soft drink business as a um, uh, generic or uh, store brand um, just wasn't going to cut it right. Um, so I think they used their process to expand into caffeine related drinks. So they went to a cold fill versus carbonated able to use their plants and facilities and ultimately went to a pure play um, water business. So I think that that one was successful um, in the sense of they got the right business. They paid a, a premium without question, but obviously it was the launch pad to building on additional acquisitions and ultimately become a pure play water company. Um, with respect to the lock business and the bike business, it's a little less clear because there's small pieces inside of a very large organization. So it's hard to, you know, definitively say um, the lock business and the electronic business drove, you know, huge, huge um, incremental growth. I believe it did because, you know, the migration to the electronic side of the business is, is clear and it was a intelligent move on their part. But to be able to specifically segregate that and say, you know, achieve 2x the synergies expected, I think is a little more challenging. Uh, the bike business, I think, has gone extremely well. Um, you look in, in the marketplace and, you know, you can see the brand and it's, it's one of the best known brands in the business. And they've extended and expanded that. So I think, I think on the bike side and the lock side, um, two different stories. Um, a quick aside, you know, step aside here. I think you asked for some, we're talking about some additional um, sort of interesting facts. Um, I remember when we were doing the lock business, or excuse me, the bike business, um, and we're sitting in a, a conference room and the uh, PE CEO, you know, CEO sitting in the business of the acquired business was pushing back on our fees. And I'm like, really sort of scratching my head because he didn't really know the fees that weren't his fees, right? They were, they were obviously coming out of um, the parent co and we're going through this sort of tussle of, you know, what we should get and when you're going to share information. And he was very, very reluctant. He was, uh, he was very self-confident, shall we say. Um, I won't say, uh, yeah, we'll go with that. And, you know, we're going through this and finally he says, stop, you know, things are going, you know, a little testy here because, there were other members of the U.S. team that were there, as well as members of his leadership team. And I was in the room and he goes, stop, uh, let's turn to the highest paid guy in the room and ask him what his thoughts are. <laughs> and I just said, um, thank you. So it was one of those moments in your career where you're like, is this really happening? I mean, because there was really no point to it. It was really just his way to, you know, um, how shall I say? make his presence known in a, in a bigger way than it already was. So I was able to, to walk through and, and sort of guide our way through it without coming across uh, in any other way, except we're here to do work. You know, I think we're in the right process, you know, so walk through it, but it was, um, it was uncomfortable for a moment. Um, so those are sort of the cultural things and you know, challenges you have is a little bit beyond, was it a success? I, I don't think he stayed with the business. So he, he was going to for a short period, but I think over time, he just was not a fit for that business in a U.S. public coal mines because he'd been three different times. He'd just come into PEs and 
flipped them and that was what he did. So he didn't fit into corporate at all. So a little bit of a segue over were they successful and what they look like post-close, but uh, I think the answer is they were successful. It's just a matter of um, how did they get do you, there? Do you remember how long this CEO stayed post the acquisition? Was it six I think he had an agreement. They needed him for roughly 12 months post-close, but it could be accelerated based on certain outs. So um, he didn't want to stay. They needed him to stay for a short period. He had presence in the marketplace, so he was known in the marketplace. So he had you know that um, aura to him and value, for, for better said. Um, so they wanted to keep that around until they could actually integrate the business, get a better handle on it, and then... Um, move forward with their management team. Thanks, Greg, again, for sharing with us and highlighting how things unfolded over time in those transactions that you worked on. Really appreciate hearing it. It's, it's great to hear about those examples and sort of how, how, they, uh, how they unfolded over time, what those results looked like. So just wanted to ask you, in your perspective, you know, what are really the critical elements that are needed to execute successfully on an integration? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, it starts with planning, you know, so understanding, you know, having a playbook, um, having a set of materials that you can come in and rather quickly um, execute. And critical to those are how we're organized. So you need an IMO, integration management office structure, right? How are we going to organize? Uh, because that will set the stage for, you know, all of the execution subsequent to that. So, you know, typically what you'll see is, you know, what's referred to as two in a box, whereby your service provider um, will sit side by side with, you know, on the, um, uh, the buy side, as well as you may have three in a box because you may bring in and oftentimes need to, um, and you need to bring in those that are being the target sided. So setting that up so that you've got a structure in place where you've got an organizing framework that is your IMO structure, so that you've got the leadership team here, you've got the deal team and others that are sort of tangential to that IMO, but need to be informed. But underneath that, you've got functional areas that are going to be critical to delivering against the, uh, the deal. So HR, you would have, you know, uh, from a service provider standpoint, you bring your HR expert in or team, and they would partner with um, the buyer and then they would coordinate with um, the target so that you've got a mutual understanding of what needs to get done. You've got a communications capability, but setting that structure up is critically important. How you're gonna have governance, how you're gonna report out, who needs to be there, frequency, you know, all of the elements of, of ensuring that those that are informed are informed in the right timeline and with the right amount of information because they, they don't need all of the detail. It needs to be raised up to a level of what are the issues, what are the risks, and you know what have we achieved. So I think that's absolutely fundamental. Um, the other element in that is just as we talked about is getting the change management and the communications in there so that you know that's a part of the overall process of what needs to be done, what will be done differently, and ensuring that those messages um, are, are uh, one, formalized, and two, um, sent to, to those who need to be a part of that which is everybody. So that change management piece and the comms piece are critically important to ensuring success, uh, especially when we have different countries, we have different regions to ours per previous point. Um, so we have to have that in place so that it's clear what the expectations are and something that's written or, or sent can be addressed uh, rather quickly uh, in a way that's, that's important um, to address those issues. And the third, as we think about the planning, um, is everything is planned against day one readiness, right? The 100-day plan. Uh, what does day one readiness look like? What does that end state look like? And how are we going to achieve that? Is that going to be achieved through a series of workshops? Is it going to be achieved through um, you know, dialogue? You know, how are we going to get there? But you, you need to have a plan and that, that flag, that that stick in the, the stake in the ground there's really that day one and what does day one look like and what do we have to do to get there but that's your talisman as you look forward is you know how do we how do we ensure that we're going to get there and what does success look like when we get there so that ability to translate all of that into a plan and a detailed plan a playbook for lack of a better word um, 
is critically important as you come in. So I think those are key fundamental areas of success from my standpoint. Yeah, that's a lot of good work that needs to be done, put together, synchronized together. Uh, and that kind of brings me to the next question. And, and uh, particularly interesting, given the fact that uh, Marcella and you have worked together in the past, how do you build a good, solid team to run an integration? I'm going to ask Marcella to answer that because uh, <laughs> I was in the position of leading the team. So I may have somewhat of a biased view. So I prefer uh, someone who actually was a team member as we're all team members, but it might be easier or better for her to uh, to start. And then I'll, I'll add what I think I tried to do uh, in the case of, uh, of the example she might be giving. Yes, sure. Happy to share. So what I would say, what I observed, I think it's just critical to establish relationships and trusting relationships, um, you know, particularly because, you know, the teams are working together, uh, maybe extended hours, trying to kind of crunch through all of the critical work in, in those timelines. So um, there's a lot to get done together. So I think building those relationships is key. And something that I really enjoyed during our time together on the, the broader team, Greg, was just opportunities to connect outside of the work. So I have really great memories of team dinners, happy hours that we had, also working out with my colleagues in the morning before going into the office or later, um, you know, after hours as well. And obviously this was in a pre-COVID environment. So we were able to do those things. <laughs> but just great memories. There was also, there was a time where we um, actually ran a 5K with one of our clients as well. So that, that was just super um, helpful in terms of building and solidifying those relationships. And that allowed us, I think, just to work so well together and to um, just move quickly. I think it'll, it accelerated the pace that we were able to, um, to um, you know, work together. It accelerated our pace as, as a mm -hmm. result. Um, and then, you know, now in a, in a COVID environment, certainly that's different, but mm -hmm. we can still have and find opportunities to make those connections and basically mm -hmm. outside of the work, find, carve out a little bit of time to get to know each other and establish those trusting relationships yeah. over Zoom. There you go. Um, I think what I would add to that is it is the right people, right? Um, in our, Marcella's example, we had people um, that rotated in and out. And it wasn't because they weren't technically competent or capable. It was a fit. So, you know, when you lead a team and try to build a team, you, you need the right people in the right places to be successful. And I think that esprit de corps, collegiality, that ability to work together, to Marcella's point, pre-COVID, um, you know, the deals, deals take time and they don't run according to plan, and it always requires more time than we thought it would take. And oftentimes that stretches our days, right? So those days can become nights. Um, and if you can't balance that, or you, the, the teams that you have are looking at it from a different perspective, then we need to swap and get the, the people that will fit for this particular team-based environment, right? And again, not to diminish any of the others who rotate in and out, but Sometimes things fit, sometimes they don't. And, you know, we just need to find the right people who can end up with a, you know, a set of outcomes that Marcella described where it worked. Um, we know when it works, we also know when it doesn't work. And the con, somewhere in the middle is the challenge. But, um, but yeah, I think it, it's getting the right team in the right place to do the right things. And um, the ability to trust, I think you brought up a good point, Marcella, is that, you know, if there is a problem, and there are problems, you know, you have to trust that you can bring those to someone who will, one, address those appropriately, confidentially. Um, but, you know, you need to be able to bring those issues to the table to someone who can deal with those because, you know, the teams are tough. I mean, we had a team of 60 some people, right? And it's a challenge. And I think that's part of the fun of what we do. Um, it's also the flip side of the challenge. So... Right, so is, is an integration team a baseball team, which is based on individual <laughs> brilliance, or is, is it like a football team where everybody needs to contribute, starting from the quarterback? Um, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's, we have 
like a baseball team, you've got a catcher, right? And you've got a pitcher who are extraordinary at what they do, right? And we need that. But I think what you need as you expand beyond that and maybe more in the IMO is you need um, someone who can play across multiple fields. You're never going to be the best third baseman or the best first baseman um, or maybe the best closer, but you have the capability of playing across the field in a way that um, drives value. So you know who to bring in, you know when to bring them in. Um, but yeah, I think there's a tech, there's a, a base level of competence that needs to exist both from a, um, a transaction standpoint, as well as from a technical competence in a particular area, be it IT, HR, finance, supply chain is way too broad, but, um, you know, things of that nature. So, so I think it's a combination of the two actually to be able to be successful. And, you know, the teams that are able to pull that off, I think, um, are brought back for other deals. Right. Uh, COVID-19 has changed many of our lives. Um, and I'm sure it's going to impact the world of MA as well. What are your views on, uh, what are some of the changes trends that are going to take place in this space? Yeah, I think it's early days, right? I, I think um, I think we're still in a place where is this the new norm, or is this something we found a workaround for? Um, but there'll be elements of this that will move forward, right? I think the um, ability to connect remotely, um, to be able to drive uh, the elements of the deal, the integrations remotely, um, is is something that's likely to stay. I think it becomes how intense is it? Is it really going to go to complete remote versus some combination? I think it's going to be a combination. Uh, there's probably no magic in that, but um, you know, I think there's still that element of relationships and face-to-face and a deal um, that are going to, you know, that have value, right? So I think we're going to find the right balance. I think what we found is um, as well is that from both a technology standpoint, call it Zoom, to just the ability to gather information and, and uh, assemble and assimilate that into what we need um, is, is a stronger, we're in a stronger place now with the tools and the technology to do that. Uh, data analytics and, and some of the other front end tools to be able to help us harvest and understand that data um, that's required to affect the integration. Um, it's, it's just incredible where we've come over the last two or three years with respect to data analytics and some of the other elements of that. So score, you know, getting dashboards, getting other elements of that um, don't necessarily require being boots on the ground. So I think we're going to see more leverage of technology. I think we're going to have uh, the ability to be more flexible in how we actually execute it. Um, but I don't think we're going to move away entirely from, you know, uh, Marcel and Greg having a coffee somewhere um, or, or, you know, somewhere else. So, um, so I think that's, that's, that's where we're going. I don't know where you see it, where each of you may see it. You, you're obviously in different, different spots, but, uh, that's kind of what my takeaway has been here over the last grueling uh, 12 months or so. It's great that technology is an accelerator. And I, I agree with you. I think it will be some, some type of hybrid, you know, remote and in person mm -hmm. occasionally, because I do think there are, um, there's just, there is something about being face-to-face, -face, right? That, that you can't necessarily, uh, you can't replicate always with Zoom, but it is great that we have, you know, it, it is great to see what organizations have been able to achieve during the pandemic. Some organizations mm -hmm. have just accelerated their businesses in, in ways they probably had never imagined. Greg, just curious, you know, anything else you wanted to share with us that we hadn't already touched on? Any last kind of thoughts, comments? I had a bunch of thoughts. I think we've touched on a lot of them. No, I, I think where I would leave it is, you know, at the end, as we look at where we're going and, and maybe tagging on to the future, uh, this is still a people exercise, right? I mean, uh, at the end of the day, um, sorry for the trite little cliche there, but as we work through this, people are involved on both sides, right? And the ability to, to integrate will be predicated in many ways on how well we're able to, to develop the relationships and the communication, understand the culture, and then drive the business side of it as well. So I think as we move forward, um, in an environment where we've got more balance, maybe um, we can't lose sight of the fact that there's people involved. And if it were 
purely a mechanical exercise, you know, RPA, something else involved where we could just automate from an AI perspective, all of what we do, it could be done. Um, it will be done if, if indeed that's possible. I just don't think it is. So I think at the end of the day, we're going to work with ourselves, you know, with people. It's, it's that piece of what we do that brings that differentiator of how well we get the things done and how successful the deals are. So um, people at the end of the day get the deals done um, in a way that I think is uh, going to move forward. As it has been, I think it's going to move forward as well. Those will be my closing thoughts. Very nice. I mean, that This has been an awesome session, I must say. Uh, Greg, thanks for sharing all of those uh, experiential elements, uh, bringing, making it... Uh, making it interesting, uh, you know, making it, giving it a shape of a story here. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, I'm sure some of the people from audience and listeners would like to get in touch with you and potentially discuss some more. What's the best way they can reach you? Yeah, probably the best way is through LinkedIn. Um, I think that's, you know, all of, you know, technology today, as we were talking about, right? It's amazing uh, how far that's come and how effective it is just, by virtue of how we connected as well. So yeah, LinkedIn is, is the, uh, the preferred mechanism. So feel free to reach out um, frequently um, with any questions or if you just want to catch up, I'm, I'm open to that as well. Excellent. And we, what we'll do is we'll share the description in the link to the LinkedIn uh, uh, for Greg. So with that, so on behalf of everybody here, uh, I would like to thank you, Greg, for sharing your thoughts and sharing your stories. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. So, Marcella, this was an awesome session. Thanks uh, for introducing me to Greg and uh, also being the co-host. Yeah, my pleasure. I really loved the opportunity to connect. Uh, it was great to hear from Greg, and I look forward to some additional discussions with colleagues as we move forward. Excellent. Uh, so, for our viewers, um, if you like this particular episode, then don't forget to hit the like button. Yes, I just wanted to say thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate this opportunity to connect. If you have some ideas you want to share with us, please feel free to reach out. Look forward to hearing from you all and have a fantastic remainder of the day. Excellent. And don't forget also to subscribe to our channel because we do promise to bring a lots of these stories going forward in the next few months. Until next time, we from our side here, we say bye-bye and stay healthy and stay safe.